Welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. And for a wonderful treat, we again have our esteemed uh, partner in crime, Gadi Taub, <laughs> joining us today after a long absence. Hey, yeah. Gadi, how you doing? Good to have you back. I'm good. It's good to be back. So uh, we have a lot to discuss today. I think we're going to focus our discussion today on what's happening with Iran and its proxies because, you know, we're all so... Um, so uh, focused on Omicron and all kinds of things related to another pandemic or another round of this pandemic and oy vavoy and woe is us. And we're gonna talk about that maybe at the end if we have time, but uh, because people have been so transfixed by Omicron or by Corona for the past two years, a lot of things that should have been the main focus of leaders in Israel and the United States and, and in, in Europe and in other countries, uh, have sort of fallen by the wayside. Um, and one of them is a serious discussion about Iran. And uh, so I think we have to talk about it because it's uh, becoming a more and more acute problem. Today, uh, when we're, we're taping this on uh, January 3rd, it's the two-year anniversary of uh, the American strike that took out the uh, commander of Iran's uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was the, ter the terror master of the world. He was responsible for all of Iran's proxy wars around the world through their proxies in uh, Lebanon, Hezbollah, and Syrian militias, and in Iraq, and in Yemen, and in Gaza, and in Latin America, and in Europe, all of their terror cells throughout the world. All of these things were under the control of Qasem Soleimani. He was also, the, through the Revolutionary Guards, also responsible for managing Iran's nuclear weapons program inside of Iran, developing their sites. He was uh, the boss as well of, uh, of their nuclear scientists. The head of Iran's nuclear program, uh, Fakhrizada, that the Mossad assassinated about a year later, um, was under the command of Qasem Soleimani. So the United States took out literally the head of the snake when they took out Qasem Soleimani. And today in ceremonies marking the day in Iran, in Iraq, in Lebanon, and in Gaza, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, thank you very much. Uh, they called for revenge and Iran's new president, Ibrahim uh, Raisi, openly said that Iran is going to assassinate the, uh, Donald Trump as uh, in retribution for his ordering the assassination or the killing of uh, Qasem Soleimani uh, in Baghdad two years ago. So, And, and I'm sure in response, the, the Biden administration will make some concession in order to appease the angry uh, people who have been hurt so deeply by Donald Trump. Or maybe they'll just help them. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I saw the U.S. The New York D.A. just subpoenaed uh, uh, Don Jr. and Ivanka. So I don't know. They're going after him their way and the Iranians are going after him their way. Isn't it but, perfect? A perfect metaphor. Yeah, but um, the, oh, yeah, but, but no, the the uh, Biden administration, I guess they're trying to, you know, their their response, their response to uh, Iran's threats to kill a former U.S. president are to renew the nuclear talks in Vienna. They also started up again uh, today. And according to the news reports uh, from US sources inside of the negotiations, the Americans are hell bent on reaching an agreement and they're sure they're gonna get there either this week or next week or in the next couple of weeks, which is pretty amazing. And um, so that's, that's what's happening. And they don't care really whether it's a full agreement or whether it's a partial agreement, which means that the United States wants to cancel all of the sanctions that Donald Trump placed on the Iranians. They want to cancel them all or almost all of them. And in exchange, Iran will basically do nothing. Um, you know, Caroline, I, I, I dabble in screenwriting. So this is, this is almost perfect for writing like a drama because it's a perfect misunderstanding. Or a of, comedy. Of, of, on, on the, the Iranians have got it just right. And and if you if you try to set it dramatically, you have one party thinking repeatedly that in order to gain favor, it should appease the bully. And the bully reading this every time rightly as weakness. And every time the Americans make a concession, the Iranian response is 
further demands and they're they're even humiliating them they're making humiliating demand because the drama as it is seen from from their perspective is they're going to they're going to completely break the other side they're going to turn them into is there a good um english word for smartut yeah they're like a dish rag a dish rag they're turning them into a dish rag because and and the dynamic is just exacerbating itself because all those rob malleys who come from think tanks where they they where, where they are specializing at conflict resolutions because because they think that, in, and, and this is a very American thing to think, that between every two positions, there must be a middle. You and, know, and, there was and, an incredible uh, spectator, British spectator article that came out this week um, where they described the fiasco, which is a nuclear toxin in Vienna. And they characterized, they, they, uh, they interviewed a number of uh, people who are involved with the negotiations, presumably from Europe and uh, one of them, ref they've all referred to Mali as the most dovish official we've ever seen. Uh, one person said that he bent over backwards so far that he speaks to Tehran from between his knees. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the guy who's in charge of negotiating, you know, Iran's nuclear program with the mullahs. This is a guy who will make a deal no matter what's written on it, so long as the Iranians agree to say that they made a deal with with the Iran with the Americans, it's it's incredibly dangerous. It, it is, but but I think that that in order to not just be um, uh, critical, uh, in, not in a way that I'm going to defend this policy, but I, but but in order to try and elucidate what's behind it, what is their point of view? What do they think? They don't just think that appeasing uh, bullies will will bring compromise and peace they also have in mind and this is the most dangerous thing what uh, um, uh, mike duran and, and tony badran called in a in a lengthy piece in tablet the realignment right. which began with obama the idea being that iran is going to turn into the cornerstone of middle east order in, under the assumption that if they, you give them a stake in the game, they will moderate because all this radical talk is just so much hot air. They just they they have no means of understanding uh, what real religious fanaticism is and what it means, and they have no respect for that. They don't respect that these people mean it. They they are willing to make great, great sacrifices if they can annihilate the Jewish state. They're willing to sacrifice a lot. They're willing to sacrifice many of their own people if they can only reach that target, which is for them conceived in, 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 in metaphysical terms. And all those Rob Malleys, they just think that, 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 that those are natives who, whom, whom we offended. So this is all a narcissistic Edward Saidian turn of mind, which is only concentrated on Western guilt feelings. And we will alleviate our own guilty conscience if we if if we bow down in front of those mullahs. So what you and I see as these people turning into dish rags is actually their own ritual of self-purification. This is what makes people like Rob Mali go home and think that they are moral, that they're good people. Well, I think it's true. I think that the story that they're telling themselves is one that makes it impossible for them to learn anything. And it's interesting exactly. because in the past couple of of, of days, maybe over the past week, uh, in addition to The Spectator, there have been a couple of other significant articles that have come out uh, about the talks in Iran. And I think the most significant one was a 5,000 word article. I wrote about it in my latest article in Newsweek that came out last week by Robin Wright. And, in, and she talked about the coming uh, sh nuclear showdown with Iran. And she interviewed, um, she interviewed um, Mali and she interviewed uh, CENTCOM commander uh, General McKenzie and traveled with him uh, in Iraq and in Syria and uh, a number of other arms control uh, people, people in the State Department uh, about what's happening with Iran. And it, it, was, it was very interesting because essentially what she said is that uh, the Americans 
are beginning to recognize that there's no deal to be had with the Iranians. And apropos that, the Spectator article said that the Americans thought that they were just going to come in, give an offer. The Iranians weren't going to be able to refuse it. They'd accept it and then it would be done and they wouldn't have to worry. So they gave their maximum offer in the first round of negotiations. And it's all been downhill from there, right? Because they put down, we're going to do this, that, and the other, and you're going to come back into the, you know, the, the restraints that were placed on you until you know 2025 under the JCPOA, the 2015 nuclear deal that they concluded when they were working for Obama. Um, and that'll be that. And the Iranians looked at this and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, this is your opening offer, not your closing offer. Let's start negotiating from here. And since then, it's just been one long, you know, pulling teeth with the Americans making more and more concessions, apparently, uh, based on their initial offer, which was supposed to be their final offer, which, of course, the Iranians laughed at because they know how to bargain a little bit better than these than these uh, than these Biden uh, uh, Biden uh, messianic nut jobs on the left. Right. I mean, you think that that uh, all that their life's goal is to make uh, third world natives like them in the name of anti-racism. And, and, and of course, the United States was not willing to, to back its own declaration that this is their final offer. Right, because so that's the weird you, thing, right? When is you that, make a final offer and the other party says, oh, not, that's not good enough, then you're supposed to say, then there's no deal. Right, and, so what's weird here is that the Robin Wright article, which is written, you know, in conjunction with Mally, she interviewed Mally, and in conjunction with the heads of the Pentagon, whom she interviewed, and, and the State Department people, whom she interviewed, is she's saying there's no deal. And here are the Americans back in Vienna as if there's no problem, and briefing reporters that they're about to get a deal, which to me indicates that the Biden administration won't learn, that like they've gotten to the point where they're that they've recognized that everything that they wanted to do can't be done, that they've totally failed. And so they've decided to just uh, double down and give more and hope that it'll work because they don't have another policy because they don't want to. And what was interesting in the interviews, McKenzie was saying how impossible it would be for the United States to win a war, to actually take out Iran's nuclear installations was most defeatist uh, uh, interview that I've seen an American uh, uh, commander given quite some time. And he said, we'd win, but it'll take us about a year and we're going to pay a horrible price. Well, that sounds like a recommendation to go to war. So he's saying no. And what I said in my Newsweek article was, look, you know, there's only one, there are two, there's one option that hasn't failed and that's sabotage. That Israel, you know, I, I posted Robin White's article on, on my Twitter account and I had the weirdest response ever. All I said was, you know, from this thing, it says, uh, from, from her article, basically, it, it would appear that there are only two options. Either the Iranian regime is going to come down or you're going to have a nuclear war. I mean, that's the upshot of what she was saying. And it was a very sort of, it's not a blasé statement to make, but it was just sort of, I wasn't trying to get into a fight with anybody. I got over a, a thousand uh, retweets that were all quotes attacking me as a warmonger and saying that anybody who who doesn't want Iran to get a bomb is an is a is a warmonger and you know a lot of it was anti-Semitic and it was all uh, saying that essentially just as they didn't find any chemical weapons in Iran I mean in Iraq we've been hearing this story for the past twenty years and that was one of the themes that kept returning over and over and over again so I'm not sure whether I was being attacked by bots or whether this is like this cultic thing on the on the both the both sides of the edges of both sides of the spectrum on the on the isolationist right and on the uh and on the isolationist left because i was attacked by both sides and i've never had this kind of response to anything so they're either bots or somehow or another this just got around to all of these circles at once at any rate the weirdest thing about this what I consider just bizarre assault on this tweet that I made where I was quoting somebody else's article, wasn't even mine, um, is that they all kept saying over and over, we've been reading this story about Iran being on the verge of a nuclear arsenal for the past 20 years, and they've never gotten it. So it's all a lie, which brings me to the sabotage, right? Because 
The thing is, is there's a reason why Iran, despite the fact that the head of the, the, the UN's Atomic Energy Agency said back in 2005 that if left to their own devices, Iran will have a nuclear arsenal by 2012. There's a reason that 10 years later, they still don't, they're still on the verge of getting a nuclear arsenal. And that's because I would attribute it to the massive amounts of sabotage that Israel has been conducting uh, uh, against Iran's nuclear installations all along, whether they're cyber attacks, whether they're, they're sabotage on the ground, uh, assassination of Iran's nuclear uh, scientists, um, and a whole host of other things that have been attributed to Israel, sometimes acting in conjunction with, it, with the United States, both under the Obama and Trump administrations, and, or acting in, uh, in coordination uh, or in, in cooperation with uh, Sunni Gulf states or with Azerbaijan earlier on, Georgia earlier on, so that the idea that um, you know, things have not moved because nothing has happened because the Iranians aren't pursuing nuclear weapons is insane, but it also shows that sabotage has worked. And the one thing that hasn't been tried at all is undermining the regime with the aim of overthrowing it. I mean, you have millions of Iranians who go out into the streets risking life and limb to protest and call death to the dictator all over the country. And it's been going on, you know, in waves really since 1997. And, and the Americans have never been willing, and neither has Israel, to do anything concrete to help them overthrow the regime. And I, I really do believe that a combination of sabotage and actions, concerted actions to destabilize the likes of Raisi, who is calling for the murder of a U.S. president, and you know, and 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 threatening world's you know global security in such a profound way, um, I think that those are at this point probably the best options. Yeah, you know, part of the problem with all with with this whole debate is that we're in the fog because we don't actually know what the capabilities are. We don't know who is bluffing who. We don't know what the actual situation is, and we don't know what's going on behind the scene. Are you talking scenes. about in Iran, or are you talking about in the about, West? About, about even in our own countries. But what, what we did know, at least in Israel, we knew, and the world knew, as long as uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was prime minister here, that there is some someone very intent, also willing to defy our great ally, uh, the United States, if we need to. He only recently repeated this, by the way, in a, in a long interview that I did with him on my podcast, where he said in the end that, that Biden um, told him, look, whatever this, when Biden uh, entered office, he said, look, whatever disagreements we have, let's keep them quiet in the back rooms. And he said to him, I'm sorry, no. We will not do that. We will not keep them in the back rooms because we will defend our own interests. And ever since Netanyahu came under Obama, under Obama's nose or rather behind Obama's back to speak to both houses of Congress, he also gave an example and a, a and, and demonstrated to the Arab world that Israel is an independent and determined power that will take care of itself. And that in itself created a different dynamic. Now we have the government of Israel is a bunch of amateurs. I don't know if you saw this. Yair Lapid, our foreign minister, posted a, a collage of clips from newspaper around the world that have the, had his picture in them. It's like, what is this? It's like, it's it, he's living in a celebrity contest. And, and I've heard from, from people like sources I can't quote, but in, in, within, uh, within the American government that, that, that this administration has basically got its hand inside a sock, uh, sock puppet, uh, which is, which is uh, Lapid here. And um, we don't know what of this is true. Some, Israel is continuing to attack. In Syria, we don't know what the coordination with the Americans really is. But but the thing is that that if we don't give the impression that we can do really radical things and that we will do really radical things if we are pushed with our backs to the wall, if we don't give this impression, then we are then 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 we are weakening our own position considerably. 
I agree with you. And it's worse than that, right? Because in Israel, there have been uh, senior ministers, uh, the defense minister, uh, Yair Lapid, uh, Naftali Bennett, and their advisors uh, weighing in on the question of whether or not Israel even has a military option in relation to Iran's nuclear sites, which is, um, which is crazy, right? I mean, they're saying we don't have the capacity, we have to build the capacity. And then the Americans say, oh, well, we'll give you two uh, refuelers in 2026. You know, that, that was a new deal that they just signed, that they're giving, they're giving us, you, you know, they're, they're selling us these, these, these uh, aircraft that, that Israel needs today, but they're only gonna deliver them in, uh, in three years when it'll be too late. So you know th this is a kind of this is a kind of kabuki theater, and, and one of the things that's most discouraging about this government, um, well, I mean, I, I don't know, it, is that it does seem that a lot of the things that they're doing, they're doing particularly in relation to Hamas, uh, in order to please the public, and that they have actually no they have no tactical or strategic significance. So, for instance, over the weekend, Hamas, uh, Hamas hit uh, Tel Aviv or the coastline of Tel Aviv with two missiles apropos of nothing. And they claimed that it was because of inclement weather, which was not the first time that they pretended that, you know, rain caused their missiles to uh, yeah. go off by mistake. Famously, rain causes missile attacks. I mean, isn't that how World War II started with rain? It is, you know, and, and our missiles go off all the time. It rained so badly on Germany that they just had to invade Poland. Right. And, you know, our family uh, missiles, right? They sometimes malfunction during rain. Don't yours? Don't, don't yeah, yeah. yeah. All of mine do. Uh, it's, it's very discouraging. Yeah, no, it's a problem, this weather, this weatherproofing your missiles, you know? Very, and, but, but, but sometimes milk helps. So if you give your missiles a little milk. A little milk with honey. Yeah. And the it's pacifier. like a cough, right? Yeah. It's like a cough. Let, let, let's give Hamas a little, a little <laughs> drink of milk and honey. It will, it will help. The, the no. whole idea... That that uh, that uh, that radicalism is curable by apologies is just completely right. So Hamas did, you know, so they 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 shot two missiles at Tel Aviv, which is pretty significant, and they weren't shot down. They weren't intercepted because the area that they fell wasn't inside of the missile shield that's that's protecting Tel Aviv, um, and they also shot anti-aircraft missiles at Israeli helicopters that were flying in Gaza. And, and they were significant. Uh, there, there were SAM 7s that missiles that were shot off, which is a significant uh, uh, upgrade of their anti-aircraft capabilities from what we've seen in the past. And it took Israel over 12 hours to respond. And apparently, according to the media reports, Israel coordinated its response with Hamas through Egyptian mediators. So it wasn't really that they were retaliating against Hamas. They were acting to quell the public outcry that they hadn't responded so that they were cooperating with Hamas to pull the wool over the eyes of the public. And that is astounding and horrible. And and when it comes to Iran, you know the thing the thing that's so that's so distressing, right, is that what 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 Iran has done very well, and really in an unprecedented way, and and Wright described it fairly well in her article about it, is that they they don't have allies, so they created allies by raising these proxy armies all over the region, the Hamas, Hezbollah, the the Syrian the Syrian government, the Syrian regime. Um, the the Shiite uh, uh, militias in Iraq, the Houthis, and all of these are not simply allies. You don't have to worry about getting any lip from them because they are actually, you know, they are your subordinates in your war machine, in Iran's war machine. Hassan Nasrallah is like the head of Iran's foreign legion in Lebanon. That's his, his, his title. He's an Iranian general in Lebanon and he controls Lebanon. So you have all of these proxy forces that act as the fingers of a fist that's being, you know, being held by the mullahs and they do everything. So it, it, they have some of the largest, Hezbollah is one of the largest missile arsenals of, in the world. You know, I don't remember what the number is, but they were like, they were um, listed, I think in the top 10 
missile arsenals in the world. Over 150,000 of them, over 30,000 of them are precision guided missiles. And they're all pointed in, at Israel. And Syria also has rebuilt its forces, completely controlled by Iran. They also have very powerful ballistic missiles that have already broken through Israel's missile shield twice, I think, and you know, and on and Iraq. And so we're not just talking if Israel wanted to launch an attack against Iran's nuclear installations, um, we're going to have our own missile shields, which are the most sophisticated in the world, very quickly overwhelmed by incoming Iranian proxy forces with Iran not even having to lift a finger and use their cruise missiles against Israel, even though they can. Yeah, they, they, they have been building gradually and wisely, and, and the West has been acting stupidly in this what and in what i tried to describe as a as a as a, a a drama where where the west reads all the signs backwards and and the iranians are just so boldly playing it they can the way this negotiation has been going on they can win with one card what this in, incompetent american administration can't win with like a, a full house they With just they, they, cards yeah, it's just it's just ridiculous the way they've they've played it. And 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 as 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 we now know, the sanctions have been very, very effective. And according to the at least according to the American information about this, the 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 uh, foreign currency reserves of Iran were just approaching the zero line. There were around four billion dollars. Um, down from a, a 260 something when Trump took office, I think. So, so the 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 the, the Trump uh, strategy of economic strangulation, where, which also held China at bay, was was very effective. And and you know there was a, the, the simple interpretation was that that Trump just understands bullies, and he understands the the very the the very simple thing that with bullies you have to be a bigger bully um and so where everybody was uh, was uh, was laughing when he called uh, kim jong on the little rocket man apparently he was doing something right and he was doing something right with these mullahs and he and he he also knew that you don't just boast and talk the the uh, let me remind you that two years ago when the attack on qasam Suleimani happened, we were all stunned. I mean, I remember opening my computer and seeing this piece of news and thinking, is this real? And it was just, it, it, it was exactly the right move. It's, it, it's remember that I can be crazy too. And Israel has, has been um, um, wisely for a long time um, uh, playing this game and making clear that it too can act like a, what we referred to, I think, in our conversations, we quoted Nixon saying the, ma the, the madman theory of the president. Um, and now instead, we've got, a, we, we've got a, a government in Israel which seeks to conduct its diplomacy, it says, on the grounds of mutual understanding and cooperation. And this is not how the game is played. If, if you want an agreement for everything, or as they, they called it here, I don't know if, if it's true. We don't know. Again, we don't know what's going on in back rooms. But if indeed they said that they had an agreement with the Americans to not surprise them, then they gave away all their cards. Then they have no policy of deterrence. If, if you're not going to surprise um, a, 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 an American administration that is acting in direct opposition to your interests, then you've surrendered in advance. Then you are towards America, what Rob Mali is towards the, the mullahs. And we are just down the domino line. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's sort of this question uh, that comes up almost necessarily. When you look at the American handling of Iran, I think that there are aspects of Trump's policies that are, are would be reasonable to criticize. And one of them is his very go slow approach to the sanctions, that he placed them gradually, that he refused to respond to the uh, downing of the US drone, that um, he, he didn't have a sense of urgency that all of this had to be done lest the Democrats take over because they're gonna give the Iranians nukes, even though he knew that was true so that 
um, you know, that there was no plan to just kind of, you know, clear the deck within four years. And part of it was because his 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 Ted his presidency was undermined for two years by the by the Russia probe and the yeah. impeachments. And so by the time that he was able to take control of his foreign policy in a significant way, he was already towards the end of 2019. And so I think, you know, that that that's the main reason. But the fact is that, you know, there was a lack of a sense of urgency. Um, and also, you know, in things like um, not providing Israel with the means to be able to take care of this, this threat on its own. And um, Israel was also not aggressive enough oh, right. uh, in, in going after, for instance, Iran's, uh, I think, uh, Iran's. Uh, missile stores in Lebanon. I mean, when you have 30,000 precision guided weapons, according to reports that are, you know, missiles that are pointed at every strategic site in your country, um, you that's an unacceptable risk and you should take it out. So I think that a lot of good things were done, but I think that overall, um, even when you had a sense of urgency, there wasn't a sense of, okay, now is the time before it's too late to start taking the kinds of drastic actions that you need to take because you don't know how long you're going to be in power. You don't know how long that people are going to be in power you can trust. And obviously with Trump, he also had incredible amounts of subversion that he had to deal with. It wasn't just the Russia probe. Uh, uh, I don't know whether we spoke about it in the past, but uh, uh, um, Yahoo News came out with this unbelievable article at the end of November um, that was talking about how the CIA and the Pentagon scuttled direct orders from the National Security Council from Trump were over 200 pages of plans to destabilize the Iranian regime that came out already in 2018. And this was a guidance to the Pentagon and the CIA to take action to undermine the stability of the Iranian regime. And it was the first time that a major project had been put forth that would in fact uh, act in subversive ways. And so you had the legal advisors in the Pentagon saying, well, we're not, we're not out in a state of war with Iran and therefore that might not be legal under international law. And so they were slow rolling it in the Pentagon. And this is all at, uh, at chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley's direction. He didn't want to do any of this. Gina Haspel, the head of the director of the CIA did not want to take any of these actions so that the, the American national security bureaucracy was saying, we're not interested in doing anything that's gonna destabilize this regime because we, you know, we think that there are moderates in this regime that we can do business with, like President Rouhani, who was, you know, he, he was actually overseeing the production of advanced centrifuges that are now spinning uranium to uh, enrichment levels of 60 and, and perhaps even 90. So, you know, weapons grade. So we're looking at a situation where Trump was being undermined from the very beginning of his presidency to the end. And in fact, they only presented Trump, according to this Yahoo News report, with options, with actual plans that the Pentagon had put together after he had lost the election. So it was clear to him that he wasn't going to be able to do any of the things that he had ordered two years earlier. So, you know, you have a lot of that kind of subversion. But, you know, and, and Trump even said at a certain point to Netanyahu, look, I'm not going to be able to take any action against Iran beyond sanctions, so you're going to have to do it. Well, okay, so then why didn't Israel already get that right and start going after the missiles in Lebanon um, instead of just going after uh, missile shipments in Syria? You know, Israel is afraid, and now um, there's a new article that came out today, which was a, a summary of an, of an interview that the Hamas leader uh, Ismail Haniyeh, I think, or, or Khaled Mash, no, Ismail Haniyeh. Yeah, yeah, it gave, was Haniyeh. Yeah. Gave to gave to Al Jazeera, where he was explaining uh, Hamas's uh, up, you know, consistent upgrades of its strategic capabilities from you know, very simple crude mortars and suicide bombings to today what they're able to do, which is uh, launch missile attacks over most of Israeli territory and also subvert Israel domestically by inciting and guiding the violence of Israeli Arabs against their Israeli Jewish neighbors and mixed Arab and Jewish cities so that they've really uh, gained a, a, a capacity that's rather decisive towards Israel. Their missiles are able to overwhelm 
uh, or almost overwhelm Israel's uh, Israel's missile defenses coming from Gaza. So all of these things he said that they were doing, they were they used the pauses between rounds of fighting in order to develop new capabilities, whether it's subterranean tunnels, whether it's longer guided missiles, building, you know, and and expanding their missile cooperation with Iran. Uh, developing their domestic new their, their domestic missile capabilities and so on and so forth. And all of this time, Israel was saying, "Well, see, they're not shooting missiles at them. See, we're deterring them." Well, they weren't being deterred. They were continuing to build. They were continuing to strengthen themselves. They were using all of these respites between their rounds of fighting, all of which they've initiated, to extend their reach, to expand their, their, their capabilities to cause massive damage to Israel. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, problems with what has been going on in recent years. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And I think that if we want to talk about that, I think we have to look at what's happening both in the United States and Israel domestically that has really tied the hands behind the back of leaders who actually want to take action against external threats, against Iran in particular, and also against Hezbollah and against uh, and, and against Hamas in a decisive way. So, so uh, focusing also on what the possibilities are, what would what would the policy, Israel's policy and American policy would be if you if it was up to you? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, we have to destabilize the regime. I think I think that Israel can do a lot as well. I mean, we see the incredible domestic repression in Iran, but we say very little about it. I mean, Netanyahu was doing fantastic work when he was making these videos in Iran, in, in Iranian, in, in Persian, and he's putting them online, you know, it's supporting the Iranian people when they were on the streets demonstrating against the regime, when he when he said that you know if there's another regime Israel will be able to help Iran solve its water crisis uh, with all of the water technologies that Israel has developed, so extending an arm and friendship, but also um, placing you know Israel should be calling for placing sanctions on Iranian leaders for their human rights abuses of the Iranian people, and 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 being very much the champion whether it's in Israel and more powerfully, obviously in the United States and they can do it in the Senate, they can do it in the Congress. You don't even have to have a majority to do it. Openly uh, uh, condemning Iran's human rights record towards its own people, that destabilizes the regime because it makes the Iranian people recognize that people on the outside support them. And you know, there's another thing that the Americans can do more easily than, than Israel can, because we don't have a GPS system. We use the Americans one. But the Americans can provide internet access to the Iranian people so that they can communicate with one another without being blocked by the regime. The regime is constantly blocking access to the internet to, to the public in order to uh, stomp out and root out anti-regime protesters and activism. So, you know, America, uh, this has been a constant request from Iranian Iranian opposition leaders is for the United States to help them to use the internet without being impeded by the regime. That would have a dramatic effect on the regime's ability to control the flow of information uh, inside of Iran and out and from inside Iran to outside Iran. I think, I think that these are things that are very low cost. I mean, one of the things that Trump was fantastic at was doing moves that were incredibly low cost, like recognizing that, that Jerusalem is Israel's capital or recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan. He didn't have to move troops anywhere in the world. He didn't have to risk the lives of any American. He didn't have to pay any money. All he had to do was make a statement and the impact, the strategic impact of that move was enormous because it, it changed the whole way that people were thinking about the balance of power in in the Middle East and what Israel's position in the regional power balance had become. And so, you know, Trump was a genius at this and, and or very bold at least in, in these kinds of things. And standing up for the Iranian people against the regime is one of those moves where there's no downside to it. And the other thing that the United States should be doing 
is they should end the negotiations in Vienna. I mean, they should just end them. They should not be conducting them. They should say, look, you know, we wanted to do this, but this regime is threatening the life of a foreign, of, of a U.S. president, and they're calling for the annihilation of Israel and for the United States. And we're just, you know, we just can't abide by it any longer, and we're leaving. That would also have a massive impact on, on the stability of the regime at home. And again, all of these are things that you do without military force. The Iranians on the ground keep saying, and they've been saying it for over 20 years, they don't want American forces in Iran. They, you know, the Iranian nuclear sites are all inside, just like in Lebanon, just like in, in Gaza, they built them all inside of civilian population centers. So if you go after the nuclear sites, you're gonna be killing thousands and thousands of Iranians who are hapless, who have, you know, it wasn't their choice to have, uh, have uh, centrifuge plants, you know, in their neighborhood. And these are things that you can do to destabilize the regime. My, rule of thumb in all of these things when you're dealing with dangerous adversaries is keep them busy at home. The busier that they are at home, the less time that they're going to have to be busy attacking you. And, you know, it's just like Corona, right? It's just like COVID. You're focused on one thing, but then you get whacked with this pandemic. You don't know what in the world you're supposed to do about it. You start, you know, and then you, you end up spending most of your working day dealing with a completely new issue. And it's very difficult to focus on the things that are actually central to your national security because you're so busy trying to figure out, well, do we shut down all schools? And what about these vaccines and, and all the rest of it? So, so here, you know, give them a corona at home. Give them something that keeps them busy because again, they're not busy at all right now. Nobody's challenging them. And I think that that's very important. I think that sabotage is very important. And I think, you know, it's well past time. Israel is going to have to start, you know, having weird explosions going off at in in missile in missile uh, depots in Lebanon. I just don't see how we can allow Lebanon to continue to uh, field this massive arsenal that's pointed at every strategic site inside of Israel. It just, it's an unacceptable risk. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I would do, but I'm not in charge, as you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm sitting, I'm sitting in my office talking to you. We, we are, we are still hoping that you will be in charge, Carly, one day, <laughs> um, and partly it is up to you. Who is uh, we? Is that you and you and you and your cat? Me, no, me and all <laughs> the people who once voted for a party called Yamina when we thought they were actually a right-wing party is when you ran for a Knesset and they didn't pass the threshold. And so you stayed out of the Knesset. Um, um, but I hope this experience did not bring you to despair of the idea of going back to politics. Because you know- Well, you know that Gotti's been getting, if he's gonna be pushing me around, I'll just push you back. You know, you're the <laughs> one who got like the man of the year from websites and you're being celebrated everywhere. So I'm, I think, I'm, I think that Gotti's gonna have to go into politics mm, much I'm faster. Not, than I'm, not this, uh, I'm not made of the same hard metal that you are made of. Uh, um, <laughs> and so we trust that eventually you will you know um, Churchill once said I've never heard anyone anyone say it like that he said being prime minister is the greatest job in the world he said because before I was prime minister I was sitting at home and I was saying you should do this and you should do this and now I can do all that so um, so my general feeling having interviewed you now about what should be done is that, that you have the same tendency. Um, let's put that on, uh, on, on the back burner. At any rate, I wanna talk just towards the end of our, our broadcast today about one thing, which is, and I think you, know, you and I talk about this all the time and, and most of the conversations in Israel and everywhere else are about this because it's the stuff that we deal with every day which is just how bad things are domestically. And, and I don't want to talk about it just to talk about what, a, what, what an idiot Bennett is or how weak he is as prime minister and all of the rest of it and how crazy his government is or the same can be said of the Biden administration. I think that there's a general uh, connection between the state of domestic affairs and the uh, sanity of, of strategic policy. Would you agree? Um, hmm. um, yeah, I think, I think, I, I think I would agree. And the case of Bennett is, is, 
is very extreme because what we see is a, is a very unruly cabinet. Um, his own ministers are treating him with disrespect and openly disobeying him. And, and uh, um, the, the, he hasn't got, it's not, you, you know, you can quantify it because he hasn't, in, in our coalition system, he only has a very tiny party and so he doesn't have enough weight, but it's not only that, it's also um, the weight in the, in the more metaphorical sense that, that you, when you're a lightweight and, the, and, and, and you don't have public respect, then, then, then you're, when you attempt to roar, you end up squeaking. I think that's true. And I think that there's another aspect to it. And I find it, um, I mean, everything is most obvious with the Americans because they're so big, right? Um, mm. But when you look at the wokeism in the United States and you look at how it's permeating inside of the general staff of the army and the highest echelons of the US military forces that they're pushing, uh, um, that they're pushing um, critical race theory on US forces in all the service arms, that they're uh, wanting to promote uh, based on race and based on, on, on gender, as opposed to based on competence. These were all things that never happened in the US military in the past. It was always a supreme meritocracy. I mean, minus, you know, minus the, the, the racism until, until Truman integrated the forces in 1948. But you know you had you had this meritocracy in the U.S. military that's now gone by the wayside, and I think you know, and obviously that's a reflection of what's going on more widely domestically. In Israel, you know, we we have echoes of the same thing. Sometimes they're they're louder, and sometimes they're fainter. But you know, you have this uh, uh, radical feminist push push to get uh, women to serve in all of the combat arms of the army, including the most elite fighting units in, in the Israel Defense Forces. And um, no, I, I was in Iraq with, with the 3rd Infantry Division in 2003. I'm always happy to talk about that because I'm very proud of it. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but the thing of it is, you know, I was the only woman with 800 men and, and it was fine, but I think it was fine because I was an outsider, because I wasn't one of them, because I was a reporter who came for the war. I hitched a ride on a Bradley and, you know, and I was watching them. And so I think, um, I think that's, I, I think that it would have been much more difficult for them to fight if they had f female uh, infantrymen with them in, in the unit. I think it would have been I think Why it would, so? Because I think that it would have harmed the esprit de corps. I think there's something very hardcore male in the experience and the fact that you don't have sexual tensions between them when they're completely focused on the mission is very important. I think that you know it, it allows them to just focus on the mission and not think about anything else. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's really important. You know, I, I mean, they're, they're in the business of not getting killed and of killing the enemy. And that, that's the job of a soldier in war. And, you know, when, when, when you're kind of interested in the person, you know, sitting next to you in the tank, it's, it's distracting. And yeah. I, I, think, I think it's not a good idea. You know, there were, <laughs> I, think, I think it's not a good idea at all. And, and um, so I, I don't know, I mean, it's not the case and it's not at the same level at all in all units. But I think in a lot of units, it is the case. And right now what you're seeing is this attempt to pretend that there's no difference between men and, and, and women, either physically or otherwise. And that sex and sexual attraction is not, is something that, you know, people can just, you know, turn on and turn off as if this, there's nothing instinctive about it. And it's very inhuman. It's very dehumanizing the way that people are treating, uh, treating, treating gender issues. And I think that it's having a, a, a bad effect on the readiness of troops. And I certainly think that it's having a bad uh, impact on what the commanders are focusing on 
as the goals of of their of their fighting forces because I, the goal know, of the I, US I, Army is not diversity and uh, inclusion, you know, and equity. It's defeating it's all of America's enemies. Uh, my thoughts on this subject, which which I confessed I haven't considered in great detail, always I, I felt instinctively how would Israeli society respond if we had some woman prisoner tortured in Syria? Um, and for some reason, which I I I I'm not sure I can give an intellectually convincing account of. I think Israeli society would be far, far more horrified at the idea of a, an Israeli woman tortured in Damascus than it would at uh, the idea that our male so uh, soldiers were often tortured there. Uh, and, I mean, and, and not, my and, husband and says the not, same thing all the time. Just I, and, and it's not something I even want to defend intellectually because morally i don't think that torturing uh, one person is different in its moral weight than torturing another uh, regardless of sex or race or or, or ethnicity or religion or whatever um, but but the thing is that i think that i think that in point of fact israeli society would find that harder to bear and i can and i can feel it myself so um, there's there's a there's a great debate here too, and um, and and I confess I haven't been following it too too um, closely, but I do know that the the woke press has been um, has been um, uh, concealing information from the public regarding, for instance, the um, autoimmunim. Uh, um, um, uh, injuries and training, training in, injuries. Training injuries. Uh, uh, that that when when females are training with the same tasks as as male combat soldiers, they they sustain more injuries. Which uh, is why but, they're also handicapping them, right? I mean, they're they're giving handicaps to female combat soldiers that they don't give to men, or they're lowering the standards for everybody, and that's happening in Israel and in the United States. And again, you know, I think that women who want to serve in combat units are fantastic and i take my hat off to them and i think that they're that they're that they are the most highly motivated females in the service and they deserve all respect and there are units that you can do that in without disrupting operations and they should be there there are units that you shouldn't be having them in and and you should be allowed as the commander to say that this is going to be disruptive of our mission and therefore we can't do it. Instead of being told by your higher echelons of command, well, you're gonna to have to figure out a way to do it because we've decided that we want women in tanks and therefore you're gonna to have to figure out a way to you know, re-engineer the, the wiring on your male soldiers so that they're gonna be able to have females in their tanks with them. And again, you know, again, it's like the Corona distraction. It's just like this COVID-19 distraction. And if you're not focusing on your mission, which is killing your enemy and protecting your forces, right, then you're not going to be able to do it as well as you ought to be able to do it. And I think that that's, you know, a real problem. We have a real problem with this kind of wokeness coming into the IDF. And the United States has even a bigger problem with the wokeness that's really just been permeating the, the, the general staff levels in the Pentagon and then moving down uh, into the command levels of the, of the service arms. And so I think you know, that, that's, that that's a problem. And it's also a problem when you're looking at the people who are thinking through policy and where they're coming from and what the milieu socially that they're operating inside of is. And so if they're supposed to be charged with protecting US national security interests and they're hanging out or they believe in post-colonial uh, uh, theories of American, you know, American uh, uh, America being born in born in sin of so of uh, of slavery, or of of uh, critical race theory and whiteness, um, then what is your goal when you're trying to when you're trying to put together a coherent foreign policy for the U.S. administration? I mean, if you think that the United States is evil, then how are you going to be able to protect it? Or why should you protect it? And do you want it to maintain its superpower role? If you think that it's a force for bad in the world, if you think that it's supposed to be cut down to size, what kind no, of strategy? No, this is exactly the Obama mentality. This is exactly what I call the Edward Said mentality, right. because those people think that America is the source of evil. 
Um, this, this, is, this is something the whole Vietnam generation has turned into a public ritual of self-flagellation. And, and, they, and, and they actually really do think people, people and, and it's amazing that someone with, a, with, with an education like Obama should actually seriously think so, that Iran is somehow going to be a more benign source of order than the monstrous imperialist, uh, arrogant uh, United States. Well, I mean, that's the thing. If you don't like the United States or in Israel, if you're if you're a leftist who thinks that Israel, you know, that there, there is some sort of a moral quandary about whether the Jews have a right to a state in their homeland or not, and whether they whether that's reasonable or whether whether it's unreasonable. And Israeli leftists are at best conflicted over Israel's right to exist. And many of them are not at all conflicted. They don't, they don't like it as a Jewish state. They want it to be something else. Then how are you gonna to put together a coherent national security policy? It's very difficult. And so, you know, I think what we're seeing with the United States is that the, I think, you know, here is, here is Robin Wright. She just interviewed uh, uh, Ma Mali and she comes to conclusion that there's no deal to be had with the Iranians. The, the, the commander of Central Command tells her, well, you know, our military options really suck. And yeah, we could do it, but it'll just be terrible. And we really, you know, it would be bad. She has a State Department person saying that, 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 that uh, sanctions have sort of, uh, they've fizzled out, they're a spent force, they're not worthwhile anymore. There's nothing to do with sanctions. There's nothing to be done. So she comes away with this thing saying, well, look, you know, Iran's gonna get a bomb then we're gonna have to figure out what we're gonna do about it. Because apparently there's nothing that we can do. Negotiations have failed. There is no good nuclear, there is no good military option. Sanctions aren't an option. And nobody wants to talk about overthrowing the regime because the, the American administration likes the regime because they think that they should be allowed to exist and that America's evil because it brought down the Mossadegh regime in the 1950s and the CIA coup. We can't have that happen again. So, you know, they, they don't want to take down the regime. And, and, then, you're, and then you're stuck. And, and this is a completely irrational policy. And then after all that, we get uh, Israeli reporters saying that uh, U.S. officials are saying they're absolutely certain that they're going to get a deal, which means that they're going to give absolutely everything to the Iranians. And we have Israel, which is led by, which is not led, where we have a prime minister with 10% of the votes in his coalition. Um, and every, uh, every other minister gets to do whatever the heck he wants, whether it's on uh, Palestinian issues, whether it's on Iran, whether it's on any, whether it's on U.S. policy, whether it's on economic policy, and he controls nobody. So this is this is a bad place to be when we're beginning uh, 2022. But it is, in fact, where we are. You know. Here's some optimism for you for the new year. Please. We should, we should specialize on this in this podcast, Carolyn. We should we should uh, market ourselves as the optimists. Okay, I'm an optimist, guys. I'm totally optimistic. I think I think is everything's going to be just fantastic. In fact, I'm going to change my name from Carolyn to Pollyanna, and everything will be fine. Uh, we we consider you a realist. I, I can be completely credible as as a Pollyanna. I think everybody would believe me. Yeah, let's do let's do an episode like that, maybe on Puri. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. So guys, look forward to it. I'm going to be dressed up as Pollyanna. What are you going to be, Golly? Gotti? Did I just uh, call I, you Golly? I just called him Golly. <laughs> I'm going to be gender queer for that episode. Oh, you're going to be gender yeah. neutral. You're, I'm going to have blonde curls. <laughs> well, that's just because you want your hair back. You could have boy hair if you wanted to. You wouldn't have to have girl hair. No, know? I already used to, got used to this. <laughs> uh, it looks very nice with my headphones <laughs> it does you, you look very dashing with your headphones on, <laughs> you know but okay guys so listen things are going to look up you know why because it's always darkest before the dawn something has to give right now everything <laughs> just looks wrong which means that i must be missing like the big picture somewhere or another right right Gotti? we're, we're yeah. missing yeah we're, we're waiting for the missing piece yet 
But I believe in freedom and I believe that the answer to the Iranian problem is Iran. It's the Iranian people. It's to help them take their country back from these genocidal lunatic murderers. I think that that is always the right answer. Just go back to the fundamentals and the fundamentals of freedom, justice in the American way, right? As Superman would say. And, um, and we just have to, we just have to, we just have to pray for the freedom of Iran and pray for the people of Iran to be able to overthrow their government. And I think that all people of goodwill should be standing with them when they stand against this horrible regime. That's, how's that for optimism? How's Amen, that? sister. There you go. And a prayer, and a prayer. Right. Okay. All right, guys. So that's the end of episode 33. Oh, All wow. right. 33. We've been we've been at this for 33 weeks. That's that's just 19 short of 52, which is a year. And uh, and we will see you again next week. We I think we the royal we I thank uh, Gotti for returning once again. Our intrepid uh, partner in in crime. <laughs> and we'll see you all again soon. Uh, and next week, we promise to be much more optimistic. We'll talk happy about new something year, else. Carolyn. Happy New Year and Happy New Year to all of you guys. Have a terrific 2022. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.